Good morning, everyone. I think we just, let me look here. This is supposed to be, oh no, we went under Theology Central. Yes, we're under Theology Central. I apologize, everyone. Uh, welcome, everyone, to the Sunday morning worship service here at Victory Baptist Church. Uh, I, I've got to tell everyone in the church. Uh, that we're under Theology Central. I forgot to hit the, uh, I hit the wrong button. So uh, good morning, everyone. This is the morning worship service for Victory Baptist Church. We accidentally went live under the Theology Central podcast instead of the VBC podcast. Um, I forgot to, I forgot to change it. So I apologize. So I will give everyone a chance to find, to find out where we are. And uh, I'm waiting for the members of Victory Baptist Church to acknowledge they are they are they've caught up with me that they they've under the right podcast. All right, let me make sure I tell everyone else. One second. All right. Oh, okay. More. Uh, one second. I'm trying to type and talk. There we go. All right. Now, I think I've let everyone know. I apologize for that. I'll have, I will, I will move it over. I will move the sermon over to uh, the VBC uh, podcast um, later. I have to download it and upload it again. Oh, it's really irritating. So uh, the second I got ready to hit the button, I was like, no, stop. And it was too late. And once I go live, there's no, there's, it's not like you can just stop and start over because the minute you stop, it immediately uploads the message to all the podcast feeds. So then if you, you, there's, there's, there's nothing you can do. I, 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 that's something, that's one thing Spreaker needs to change is when, when you hit stop, it should say, do you want to upload? Yes or no. It should give you the ability to, 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 choose if you want to upload it yes or no because if you need to stop in the middle of a live broadcast and then you can hit no then at least it won't upload and you won't have the problem so um i'm going to i'm going to send an email to spreaker today and ask them if they could uh, change that because it should just allow you when you're done with the live broadcast do you want us to upload it yes or no and um that cuz then i could have just stopped and started over and it would it wouldn't have caused any problems but they don't allow that so that's what's going on now Right currently, obviously, we are doing the live streaming thing here with no one, one present, and it's <laughs> I don't know I don't know what uh, the future holds. It really is not looking great. In fact, just while I was talking, um, Florida reports a record fifteen thousand three hundred infections in a single day. Florida is reporting. This is literally two minutes ago. 15,300 infections in a single day. I mean, the numbers are going crazy. And again, I keep telling everyone the death numbers will start going up and following this. I don't know. I don't know if lockdowns are coming all over the place. I don't know if, 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 if we've reached a point where no one's going to follow any of the rules anyway. So we're just going to experience um, a very long time of this virus being around, a lot of people getting sick and a lot of people dying which is a very unfortunate thing. So I don't know when church is going to get back to normal, but I promise you this. 
Um, I'll, I'll try to get everything set back up and I'll, uh, I'll bring back, uh, the hymns and I'll get everything set back up the way that it was. I've got to uh, find those files again and bring them back in and then load them up and, and do all of that, have those ready to go. I'll create another folder with just the hymns where it's easy to access when I want to play them. Uh, so, um, I will do that. Um, I, and hopefully we'll get it set back up. So it sounds like a little bit more like a, an actual church service, um, yeah, so it's hard. It's hard to. Uh, yeah, we, we're gonna have to. Uh, we're gonna have to to see how this all plays out and what the future holds. Uh, I am happy that, I, as far as I can tell, that all of this shutdown is not really has not had a negative impact on the church or on the giving. I think everything is still moving forward pretty much like it was. I think maybe being a small church, we're kind of built to survive this where large churches really aren't. I mean, in some ways they should be because they have more people who can give more, but um, they also have more, uh, they have staff to pay, they have overhead, they have they have a lot of, uh, they have debt. And so when you, if, if any of the giving drops off a little bit, in many cases, they're, they're going to be greatly impacted. So this may become a, a situation where small churches may be able to make it through this and others do not. I don't know. Just pray for churches around the country, Pray for pastors, pray for um, uh, everyone making it through this, and uh, we will just see. We'll take it week by week. We'll look. Um, obviously, members of Victory Baptist Church, your thoughts, your opinions, let me know um, how how you want to, to move forward. We just need to make the best decision so that we can uh, ensure that we are protecting one another. And of course, the last thing we want to do is somehow end up in the news that someone from our church then spread it to someone else and then that person died. If you saw what happened in Florida with the teenager, um, big controversy. The church supposedly had some kind of party, got together. Um, 17-year-old girl had all kinds of health problems, shouldn't be anywhere in a pandemic. She went, 17 years old, she's dead. And the media is like, hey, church, why didn't you, you were, there was no social distancing, there was no mask. Now the church is trying to deny it and play it down, saying, no, 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 there's a lot of controversy because supposedly they had images on their Facebook page of the little party they had that some were referring to it as a COVID party. Um, and supposedly those images were taken down and the church is like, nope, we never did any such thing. It wasn't a church party. The church didn't have anything to do with it. And there, there's a lot of debate about it, but like that, that's the thing. If, if the church gets linked to it, then the church, the church, and we may say it's not fair that the church would be treated differently than say a business, uh, but that's the reality. And, uh, we just, we, we would not want that. So just pray and I'll, I'm going to continue to try to make the best decision I can based off the best information that I have. And we'll, all we can do is move forward and stay. We got to stay unified. We got to stay focused on our spiritual condition and just doing the best we can to do what a church can can in the midst of this, that no matter what's happening with COVID, the church can still teach and preach and the church can teach and preach and address issues happening in our culture from a, a biblical perspective. And I can do that around the clock. All I need is a microphone and I can do it, obviously, clearly socially distancing from everyone since I'm in here by myself. So I can do that and still talk to people around the world. So let's pray. Let's be thankful that we live in a time where we have that ability to do that. 
and then pray that I will take every advantage uh, advantage of this technology and that we will hopefully are helping people spiritually around the world, even though we're, we're not currently meeting in person. So just I just want to just kind of get us all back in the right frame, frame of mind and moving forward. We're still a church. We got to still think of ourselves as members of the church. We still have a responsibility to the church. Even though we're not meeting in person, we still have to move forward and do the things that we were doing. And uh, just pray and uh, let's, we'll see what happens. All right. Now, with all of that said, Romans, the book of Romans, the book of Romans. I know we were just in the book of Romans during Sunday school, but there we were looking at Romans chapter eight and how uh, uh, one of the most influential churches in the country handled a a verse in Romans chapter eight. We are going, uh, we're in Romans chapter five. If you want to go back to Romans chapter five, just to remind you of what we're doing, we're in Romans chapter five and we came to this very, 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 very difficult section of scripture. Romans 5, 12 to 21. Some call it one of the most difficult passages in the book of Romans. I still believe Romans 2 contained the most difficult concept of this idea that we're going to be judged according to our works. I still think that's the most difficult. But in Romans 5, 12 to 21, there is a lot of difficulties to try to unpack. And so we started working on it. Just remember Romans 5, 12. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world... And death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. I know you all have that memorized. I know you all are reviewing that verse on a regular basis on the Bible Memory app. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Here we are being introduced to the idea of how sin entered into the world. It entered through the world through one man. Then therefore, because of sin, death came with it. Death passed upon all men because all people have sinned. So this brings up the doctrine of sin. So we have decided to take a little, kind of little detour. And instead of continuing moving through Romans 5, 12 through 21, we want to make sure we understand the doctrine of sin. We want to make sure we understand it correctly we understand it from a biblical perspective, and we have a good theological understanding of this very important subject. And we've been utilizing uh, Grudem's systematic theology uh, to try to address this, and hopefully, hopefully it's been beneficial. I've got to take a drink of water here. And I'm going to review this, and hopefully... Hopefully it will be beneficial. If my voice holds up, I'm, 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 I'm difficulty here have, talking. Give me one second. All right, here we go. Let's review. Now, this is where I wish everybody was standing in front of me, but that's not the way it's going to work. So we'll do review this way. We first started off with a definition of sin. And the definition we gave for sin was this. Sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. Sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. That was the definition we gave. Then we moved to the definition of sin, to the origin of sin, and we raised a lot of difficult questions Probably made a lot of people uncomfortable who were listening, but we dealt with the origin of sin. Not going to go back through that again. Then we talked about the doctrine of inherited sin. And what we learned is that we inherited guilt. We are counted guilty because of Adam's sin. 
right? Remember, that's inherited guilt. We are guilty because of Adam's sin. Adam's sin, and we inherit that guilt. We are guilty of his sin, even though we did not commit it. Because we are in Adam, we are guilty of it, and we inherit that guilt. That means before we do anything, before we can do anything, before we try to do anything, we're guilty in Adam. Right? That has nothing to do with your action or my action. But we didn't just inherit guilt. What else did we inherit? We inherited corruption. We have a sinful nature because of Adam's sin. Not only did we inherit a guilt from Adam, we inherited a corrupt, sinful nature. So before we do anything, we are corrupt inwardly because of our nature. And remember how it works. We commit sinful acts because we are sinners by nature. We do not become sinners by committing a sinful act. No, the nature precedes the action. And because of our nature, sinful actions flow from it, right? Hopefully everyone has that written down. All right. Um, and our nature, I'll just give you some, some things to remind ourselves. In our natures, we totally lack spiritual good before God. In our nature, there's, there is no spiritual good before God. When God sees us, he sees our corrupted nature. There is no spiritual good before him. Next, and our actions, because of our nature, we are totally unable to do spiritual good before God. Because of our sinful nature, none of our actions can ever be considered good before God. There can be no spiritual good produced in us because our spiritual good is corrupted by the sinful nature inside of us. Right now, that brings us to today's topic. We're going to call this sin practiced, or we could call this the doctrine of actual sin in our lives. The doctrine of actual sin in our lives. This is one subject that all of us should be an expert in. And the reason we should be an expert in it is because we practice at it 24 hours a day, seven days a week. What do we do continually? We sin. We practice sin. We commit actual sin. Now, we're already guilty in Adam. We already have a corrupted nature because of Adam. But now this becomes the reality in your life. This is your doing. This is your action. This is your thinking. This is your attitude. This is your motivation. We commit sinful act, acts. We think sinful thoughts. We desire sinful things. We want our way in a sinful way. Because we are sinners. So we're going to really look at the practice of sin. Sin practiced. And again, we practice it all the time. They always say practice makes perfect. Well, we're perfect sinners because we practice it on a regular and consistent basis. And it's just weird that we practice it. We know that we do it. But then we have this weird way when it comes to the practice of sin of saying, okay, you can practice all of that sin and you're okay, but if you practice that sin, you're not okay. It's really weird how we, we say these are the bad ones and you can't practice the bad ones. These are the ones that are bad, but they're not as bad as the bad ones, so you can practice them and you're okay. I, it's weird how we think about sin. I think that because we commit it I'm going to throw out a theory. I think because we commit sin on such a regular and consistent basis that our thinking about sin is greatly messed up. 
because it's something we practice all the time, we, we can't just view all sin somehow the same way. So we, 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 because we just can't. And as a result, we create all kinds of weird, inconsistent ways of looking at sin. You know, you do it. I do it. We all do it. All right. So let's dig into this subject and see what we can find. All right, here we go. The doctrine of actual sins in our lives. The first thing I want you to consider is this. This is very straightforward. You know this. All people, all people, including you, are sinful before God. All people are sinful before God. And this is sinful before God in our practice, not sinful before God simply in Adam or because of our nature. All people are sinful before God in our practice and what we do. All right, let's look at a couple of scriptures here. Go to Psalm, I believe it's Psalm 14. Psalm chapter 14. Let's look at it. Psalm chapter 14. Psalm chapter 14, if I can find Psalm chapter 14. Here we go. For some reason, I keep skipping Psalm 14. Here we go. Uh, Psalm chapter 14, look at verse 3. Psalm chapter 14, verse 3. Well, you can go back to verse 1. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. Look at verse 3. They are all gone aside they are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. There we have it. That's, that's a, a condemnation upon the human race. And we know Paul picks up that same language in Romans chapter, uh, Romans chapter one, Romans chapter two. Uh, he picks up the same idea, right? We've all gone astray. We're all corrupt. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Uh, David says, no man living is righteous before you. He says that in Psalm, I believe that's Psalm 143.2. Let's look at it. Psalm 143.2. Psalm 143.2. Let me make sure of that. Psalm 143.2. And enter not into judgment with thy servant, for in thy sight shall no man living be justified. Okay, it's a little different way of saying it than the way Grudem uh, translates it or states it. But basically the concept is no one can be justified before God. No one stands righteous before God because we are all guilty in practice. All right, Um, very important. Um, In the New Testament, Paul has an extensive argument in Romans chapter one, verse 18 to Romans chapter 3, verse 20, showing that all people, both Jew and Greek, stand guilty before God. He says, all men, both Jews and Greeks, are under the power of sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 10. He is certain that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. And James, the Lord's brother, admits, we all make many mistakes, is how Grudem has it translated. James chapter three verse two, and if he and he and if he as a leader and an apostle, right? That's that's a leader and an apostle is making an argument that we all make many mistakes. That means even leaders and apostles make mistakes, and they sin. That's the argument here. Let me read exactly how that's translated in James three two. Let me make sure. 
because it may be a, a major difference in translation. So let me look here. James chapter 3, let's look at it. James chapter 3, verse 2. Uh, for in many things we offend all. For in many things we offend all. We all offend, we all make mistakes, we all fail, we all sin. That's the implication that Grudem is taking from that. And again, if James is saying that as, as a leader, as an apostle, then that means we all fail. We all, leaders do Church members do, we all do in our practice. We're all guilty before God in our practice. Um, and the early church, uh, if a leader and an apostle in the early church could admit that he made many mistakes, then we also should be willing to admit of ourselves. John, the beloved disciple who was especially close to Jesus said, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. All right? All people are sinful before God. This is a universal truth. It is universally taught in the Bible. It is universally experienced by every person listening to me. And it is universally practiced by every person listening to me. All right? It's universally taught. It's universally experienced and it's universally practiced. There is no question about it. There is no denying. It's the one, it's to me, it is the one truth that is the best proof of Christianity. What is wrong with the world? Why is there so much violence and fighting and arguing and hatred? Why, no matter what we do, you can tell people to be nice. You can tell people, look, if you don't do these bad things, here are the, you can avoid all these uh, negative consequences. Doesn't matter. People do wrong. People hate. People are filled with selfishness, sin, ungodliness, murder. You go on and on and on and on. It's a, the universal reality of the, of the human experience. It's the one thing the Bible clearly gets right about the human condition. And everyone else who comes along with a different view of humanity is proven wrong over and over and over. We're not basically good. We are totally depraved sinners and our, our practice demonstrates it. All right? We, so we don't need to spend a lot of time with that because we all understand that. So we go from, uh, so the, the, the first thing I want you to remember is that all people are sinful before God in practice. Now, here's a, a very important question. Does our ability limit our responsibility? Does our ability limit our responsibility? Now, we know that we are guilty in Adam. We know we have a sinful nature. And if we have a sinful nature, that's going to limit our ability, right? Our ability is going to be limited because we can't be godly. Our ability, we, we can't be holy. We cannot be perfect. We are going to sin, right? We are sinners in practice because of our sinful nature. So does our ability not to sin limit our responsibility, right? Does the limit in your ability limit your responsibility? Now, you may be able to give me the right answer, but do you really think that way? Because I think what you're, I, I hope what you would say is no, my lack of ability does not limit my responsibility. But do we really think that way? And then is that fair? Now, th this gets to a really deep philosophical problem for Christianity. This is how Christianity kind of comes along. Hey, you cannot be perfect. 
you're going to sin, but you better not cross the line. Because if you do, we're going to rain down rocks on top of your head. We're going to brand you with a scarlet letter and you're going to be finished. Well, wait, wait a minute. You just told me that I'm going to sin and I can't be perfect. Yes, but you can't, you can't commit this sin or you can't commit that. I think that's what we kind of do. I think what we do is we limit responsibility for certain sins and then we hold uh, responsibility for other sins. I, I think we play a really weird game with this. Have you ever really thought about this? Does your ability limit your responsibility? Now, Pelagius, we all know him, obviously was a popular Christian teacher, active in Rome about, uh, what, 383 AD to around 410 AD, somewhere around that time. And then later uh, until uh, uh, 424 AD, uh, he taught that God holds man, now listen, this is what he taught. He taught that God holds man responsible only for those things that man is able to do. I want you to hear that again. Pelagius taught, I want you to hear this, I want to make sure you get this down, that he taught that God holds man responsible only for those things that man is able to do. Since God warns us to do good, therefore we must have the ability to do good that God commands. That was Pelagius' idea, right? So God holds man responsible for only the things man is able to do. And because God warns us to do good, therefore you must have the ability to do good. That was Pelagius' teaching. He's not going to hold you responsible for what you can't do, but he commanded you to be good. He commanded you to be holy. Therefore, you possess the ability to be good and to be holy. Now, was Pelagius right? Do we have the ability to be good? Do we have the ability to be holy? No, most, I mean, I will argue biblical Christianity says, no, you do not have the ability to be holy, to be truly good. Well, then if that's the case, then why, then how do we, how do we hold people responsible? Can we hold pe- people responsible? Clearly, the New Testament seems to imply that we hold people responsible to some level. Church discipline is taught. Rebuking people is taught. How do, how do we reconcile that in your mind? Now, we've already demonstrated how, how bad our situation is. We're, we have a corrupted nature. Okay, we have uh, uh, cor- we have uh, inherit- inherited guilt and an in- inherited corrupted nature, and we practice it. Those are that's th- those are three truths that we can't get around. Now, those three truths lead to the logical question: Well, then, are you resp- does your ability limit your responsibility? Pelagius came along and said, "No, wait a minute, guys. God's not going to hold you responsible for what you can't do, but because God commanded you to be holy and good, well, then you have the ability to do it." Man. That's, do I have that ability? What, like, what, what do we do here? All right. Um, the Pelagian position rejects the doctrine of inherited sin or original sin and maintains that sin consists only in separate sinful acts. According to Pelagius, sin is not a nature. It's only an acts. So he may even go so far as not even to say it doesn't even have to do with thinking or action uh, or thinking, or attitude, it only deals with the actual action. Now, I'd have to verify exactly when we went through the 18 points of Pelagian thought, so we'd have to look in there to see if that 
is 100% accurate. But um, I, I think I don't see how Pelagian could really go beyond action and be consistent with his position. Now, however, the idea that we are responsible before God only for what we are able to do is contrary to the testimony of Scripture, which affirms both that we are dead through the trespasses and sins in which, in which we once walked and thus unable to do any spiritual good and also that we're all guilty before God. So the Bible clearly teaches that we're guilty, that we're, that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. That's the way we used to walk. And even though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, meaning we lack an ability to do anything about it, we are still told we're guilty. Now, I will argue, and this is very important, the Bible commands us to repent. And I will argue that we can't repent on our own. God has to grant us repentance. Now, there are Christians out there who says, no, 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 no. We can repent. Well, if you're dead in your trespasses and sins, and when I say repent here, I'm speaking of repentance and in regards to initial salvation. If I go to a lost person and tell them to repent, can they just repent on their own? Many Christians believe that they can, but if they're dead in their trespasses and sins, how can a dead person repent, right? But they're still responsible to repent. Is that fair? Is that, I mean, I, I, we probably don't like it, but it's it's something we have to at least wrap, wrap, at least wrap our minds around. Well, because if we don't, then we're not, we're not, well, we're not asking the tough questions we need to ask. All right. Um, moreover, if our responsibility before God were limited by our ability, then extremely hardened sinners who are in great bondage to sin could be less guilty before God than mature Christians who are striving daily to obey him. And Satan himself, who's eternally, eternally able to do only evil, would have no guilt at all. Surely an incorrect conclusion. In other words, in this particular case, if your lack of ability lessens your responsibility, then put yourself where you have the absolute lack of ability to do anything right. And then you say, well, therefore I don't have any responsibility. Well, that's not the biblical way of thinking. All right. The true measure of our responsibility, the true measure of our responsibility and guilt is not our own ability to obey God, but rather the absolute perfection of God's moral law and his own holiness, which is reflected in the law. Therefore, you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. We're still responsible for that. And we're responsible not because of our ability or lack thereof. We're responsible because of the absolute perfection of God and his law. The law is perfect. God is perfect. He demands perfection. We're responsible for that, even though we can never attain to it. Right. Therefore, that's why we need the perfection of someone else. Right. So we would argue that the lack of ability does not limit our responsibility. I put it in a question form. Does our ability limit our responsibility? Does your ability limit your responsibility? The answer is no. Your ability does not limit your responsibility. Your lack of ability does not limit your responsibility. We are responsible before God. Now, again, I think what we do is we answer that question correctly. Man, you know, I'm, I'm not, uh, my ability makes me responsible before God. But then we turn around and this is what we do. We ignore 
50,000 ways in which we sin on a regular basis. And we say, well, you know what? I can't be perfect. So all of these small sins, we somehow excuse it because we say, hey, I can't be perfect. So, you know, what am I going to do? And we almost play down our responsibility. Then someone commits a big sin and they were like, crucify him. Well, wait a minute. You know, you're responsible before God and you're responsible before God and all the other areas that you don't seem to think are that big a deal. Like how it's weird. Like this creates a very weird world where we Christians are all over the place. We are so inconsistent in this. And, and we don't even see our own inconsistency. And the reason we don't see our own inconsistency is because we are so, we habitually are practicing sin. Then what can we do? And this is important because again, many Christians teach that, hey, if you're in Christ, you're a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Well, if all the old things are gone, then how, why am I continuing, continuing to practice sin? Like the, we have to figure out a biblical way of trying to approach this. And this at least raises the question. Now, let's go to a third, or let's go to another. So let's go through this. All people are sinful before God in practice. There is the doctrinal truth. We asked a question in regards to that doctrinal truth. Does our ability limit our responsibility? No, we are still responsible in spite of our lack of ability. And number three, uh uh-oh, now this one, Now, I know to even approach this subject is not pleasant. I understand this raises lots of questions, can make lots of people mad, but but a church cannot ignore the next question simply because it makes people uncomfortable and uh, simply because it's a painful topic. We have to deal with it. No matter, you can't deal with the doctrine of sin and ignore this. And I've seen millions of churches that ignore this subject because they know how controversial it is. And you cannot do that if you're truly going to be a church. So we're going to, once again, run into this brick wall of controversy, but we have no choice. Here we go. Are infants guilty before they commit actual sins? Are infants guilty before they commit an actual sin. Now, th- this is v- this raises all kinds of questions and we're going to have to look look there. And, and we could get into an argument. I don't even know. Like some people would argue to commit an actual sin, they would have to have, they would have to be conscious of this. And so they try to create this age of accountability, but they can never even agree on like what, at what age does one become accountable? I mean, how, how, how old does a child have to be before you know that child knows what they were told to do and they do the opposite? Like you see that behavior r- relatively uh, early on. Some will try to excuse it. Well, but wait a minute. Does the child's ability to understand limit its responsibility? Is the child still responsible even though they lack certain ability to understand? Because I'm still held responsible, even though I lack the ability to be perfect. So if the child like, uh, lacks some ability, are they still held responsible? Right. That raises lots of important questions, okay? Um, let's, let's see how Grudem handles this. Are infants guilty before they commit actual sins? Some maintain that scripture teaches an age of accountability before which young children are not held responsible for sin and are not counted guilty before God. However, the passages noted above, okay, and some of the the passages we've already looked at, 
dealing with inherited sin, indicates that even before, even before birth, children have a guilty standing before God and a sinful nature that not only gives them a tendency to sin, but also gives, uh, also causes God to view them as sinners. When you go back to the things that we inherited, we're guilty in Adam, we have a sinful nature, so that means before we ever commit an act, we are sinful, which this would include infants. So their responsibility is irrelevant because I had no responsibility to do anything about Adam's sin. Guess what? I'm guilty of it. I had no ability to stop Adam from sinning. Guess what? I inherited his nature. So I think I think this is very important for us uh, to consider and remember. Um, in fact, you can just consider this scripture. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. I was conceived in iniquity, Psalm 51.5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. He was brought forth. He was conceived in sin as a sinner. That's David confessing, hey, all those horrible things he did, the murder, the adultery, the cover-up. Yes, he did that. And why? Because he was sinful from birth, from conception, and if you're, if you're sinful from conception, then guess what you're going to do after you're conceived and are born and are grown up? You're going to commit sin. That, and that's the way it is because of your nature. But that doesn't, that doesn't take away your responsibility. And just because the child may lack an ability, they're still held responsible, just like an adult lacks the ability, but still held responsible. The passage that, uh, the passages that speak of final judgment in terms of actual sin deeds that have been done, Romans 2, 6 through 11, do not say anything about the basis of judgment when there have been no individual actions of right or wrong, as with children dying in early infancy. In such cases, we must accept the scriptures that talk about ourselves as, as having a sinful nature from before the time of birth. Furthermore, we must realize that a child's sinful nature manifests itself very early, certainly within the first two years of a child's life, as anyone who has raised children can affirm. David says in another place, the wicked go astray from the womb. They err from their birth. Uh, Psalm 58 verse 3. All right, now let's stop right here. Let's make this very clear. There is no way to get around the guilt and sinfulness of an infant. There's no way to get around it. They're born sinners. Very controversial. But let me make this very clear. This doctrinal truth, I think, is imperative, or you're going to misunderstand some very serious passages in the Old Testament. For example, in the Old Testament, we can just take the story of the flood. Clearly, when God flooded the world, Infants died. There's no way to get around it. Well, then how could he kill the infants if they were not sinners? If they're not being held accountable for their sin, how could he kill them? There are other cases where God commands Israel to go in and kill every man, woman, boy, girl, child, infant, kill them all. How could God command the killing of infants? How could he do that? He can do that if God is holy, that infant is a sinner, then God can call out judgment upon a people, including the infants, kill them, and God would still be just. Now, from a worldly 
from an earthly perspective, we don't like that. We hate that. But if it's not true, then God would be guilty of killing an, in, an innocent child. But there is no innocent children because they're all guilty before God. In what ways? They inherited guilt and an inherited corrupted nature. Very straightforward. This doctrine helps work through those very difficult passages in the Old Testament. That's the only way to uh, understand them. It's the only way to work through them. So this raises the obvious question that nobody wants to deal with, right? This raises the question, but what, and this is how Grudem writes it, but then what do we say about infants who die before they're old enough to understand and believe the gospel? Can they be saved? Can they be saved? Well, this is the this is the million dollar question. All right. Now let's approach this carefully. Can they, so what do we do with infants? They die in infancy. They they're not old enough. Now depending on your the, theology, but we'll we'll bring in every theological system we can bring in. All right. Some theological systems say you cannot be saved until you. They believe in this idea that you have the free will. This is not about God's electing. This is not about God regenerating. This is about you. Decisionism. You have to make a decision for Jesus. And when you make a decision, you get saved. Well, then the child can't make a decision because they don't understand. So are they saved? So they'll, they'll, some will try to make a way, make a way around it. Well, well, yeah, they're going to be saved because they can't make a decision. So if I can't make a decision, then I'm saved. So all God needed to do is take away my ability to make a decision and everyone would be saved. So then you can't say the decision is required. All you have to do is take away someone's ability to make a decision. And the best way to take away everyone's ability to make a decision is to burn every Bible, burn down every church, never mention the name of Jesus again. Then no one can make a decision because they would not have the knowledge to be able to make a decision. Therefore, you're taking away the responsibility. Well, wait a minute, but we're responsible no matter what. My ability does not take away my responsibility. Even though I lack the ability, I'm still responsible. Remember, that's why I emphasize that. That, that puts you in a, that principle puts you in a logical prison that you're, you're going to end up being inconsistent. If ability determines responsibility, then none of us are responsible before God because none of us have the ability to be perfect, but we're all held Everyone knows we're responsible even though we lack the ability. Well, just because a child lacks the ability to make a decision for Jesus, well, then that takes away their responsibility? And if, if that's the key, then you just take away everyone's ability to make a decision by keeping everyone ignorant. So the decision one doesn't really work. The decision one doesn't really work. If you get over into the more reformed world, the reformed world is we are saved based off God's predestination, his electing, he calls, and he justifies. But guess what we say? Simply being elected doesn't save me. God elects me, but I have to be saved when he regenerates me, he calls me, and I have to respond by faith. The faith he gives me, I respond in repentance and faith. He gives me the repentance and faith, but I am not going to be justified apart from repentance and faith. Okay, well, that child has not repented or believed. So you're saying that child can be saved apart from faith and repentance? Apart from regeneration? 
How does that work? Does that not contradict our very team? He's like, well, they don't have the ability to repent and, and, and believe. Well, if they don't, that doesn't deny their responsibility. Well, couldn't God regenerate, couldn't God regenerate them and open their eyes and get them faith and repentance even as an infant? Well, no, that doesn't make any sense. Well, can't God do anything? Like, like, how do you, you, you got to start making all of these exceptions. The age of accountability comes along and tries to get all the children off the hook for as long as they can, 12 years old, 13 years, 14. I mean, if the, if you can have children 13, 14, you can probably even have them 15. If they die in a school shooting, then they all go to heaven, according to most Christians. If the children die in a terrorist attack, they all go to heaven. You see, here's the thing. Christians don't like the doctrine of hell and they get, and they find every way to get people out of hell because they don't like it. Well, that's, that's not the way we can approach the subject. So, so what do you do? Others argue, well, the way to get the babies saved is to put some water on them. Put some water on them and then boom, 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 they're saved. Well, okay, that's, that's a great human idea, but where does the Bible justify that in any way, shape, or, or, or form? Like, what do we do here? How do we, how do we work this? Everyone has a theory. Everyone has an idea. Now, everyone runs to, well, wait, when the baby died and David says, you know, I can't go to it um, or it can't come to me. I will go to be with it. Um, Hey, that means he was saying that the baby is in heaven or was he simply saying, hey, the baby's dead. There's nothing I can do now. And one day I will die too. That a lot of people believe that's the way to understand it. But no, no, no. We're going to turn that into an entire doctrine of babies being saved simply by dying well, if babies are simply saved by dying, then guess what? You you cannot argue that you are justified by grace alone through faith alone because of Christ alone because the child had did not demonstrate or exercise any faith. So you don't believe that we're saved by grace alone through faith alone because of Christ alone because there's an entire group of individuals who can die and get to heaven. And then that particular case, abortion would be the greatest gift ever given to mankind because you could abort every baby and ensure that every baby goes to heaven. So do, what, do you, what do you believe about something? Well, the, the baby doesn't have the ability. Lack of ability does not determine responsibility. We all lack the ability to be perfect, but we're still held responsible for our imperfection. This is, again, this, I know it's a sensitive subject, but we have to be willing to have the conversation. Look, look, if you're not gonna, if you're not willing to have the difficult, con- look, let me think, let me say it this way. And this is very important. You have this conversation and a lot of, uh, a lot of people who've lost a, a child at infancy will get very emotional and get very upset. It's not easy, but let's make sure we, 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 we are just, let's put this right down there and let's be blunt. Every person who's alive most likely has had someone in their life die who possibly wasn't saved. And they've had to face the possible reality that their loved one, no matter who they may be, is in hell. I have to face the the absolute reality that probably 99.9% sure that my mother is not in heaven and that she's burning in hell right now. I don't like that. Now, I can run around and try to change that all day, but it's not up to me to change. There's a very high probability that my father is in hell. I cannot change that, right? I cannot change that. Um and so we have to, we have to be willing to deal with that no matter how much we don't like it no matter how much uh, how unpleasant it is we have to face it we all 
Everyone has experienced the loss of someone, and if they haven't, they will. A grandparent's going to die, a cousin's going to die, a brother's going to die, a sister's going to die, a child's going to die, a parent's going to die, a friend is going to die, a coworker is going to die, a fellow student's going to die. It, I mean, look right now during the COVID-19 situation, how many people have died? Death is all around us. And whenever we're confronted with death, guess what we're confronted with? What happens after? Now, here's the thing. If we can find a way to say, well, they, they can be saved. They can be saved without exercising faith, without being, uh, with no repentance, with no faith. And, and because, and we can argue they lacked uh, ability or they lacked this, then we're going to start applying that to anyone and everyone that we don't want, that we don't want to. I mean, a, uh, a, a person who's 15 raised in a Muslim country who's not, who's not even being able to hear Christianity, not even being able to, 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 to study Christianity. Because he's in a Muslim country and Christianity is kept far from him and he dies. Does he go to heaven or hell? Lacks the ability, doesn't even have knowledge. How about people in, in parts of the world have never heard the name of Jesus? Now, I've heard plenty of Christians say, well, if they've never heard the name of Jesus, they, they go to heaven. Well, if they go to heaven, well, then the key is to keep everyone in ignorance. This is, I just want to make sure you realize this has nothing to do with whether it's a baby, because we all, whether it's a baby or an adult, we all face the same difficulties. Now, sometimes what we'll say, well, the adult had a chance to repent and the child didn't. But again, there are adults who live in parts of the world. Did they truly have a chance to repent? What's your chances of becoming a Christian in a country where Christianity is banned and kept from you, or you're born in a Muslim country? What's your chances? Not good. This is a very difficult subject, very difficult. So we have to realize this. We've got to at least face the, the reality, even though we don't like it, and acknowledge, man, this is, this is not easy. We have to at least deal with that. Now, let's see if Grudem offers a solution. Let's see if Grudem offers a solution. Because I, the one thing I've learned is all theologians want to offer a solution because they want, they cannot bear. And I think, and I think this is just true. I think all Christians want to offer a solution. If, if their loved one dies, if there, even if there is no sign of salvation, they're going to find a way to get that person into heaven. But the thing is, we don't get to determine that. Right? So here we go. This is what he's going to do. What do we say about infants who die before they are old enough to understand and believe the gospel? Can they be saved? Here we must say that if such infants are saved, it cannot be on their own merits or on their own basis uh, or, or on the basis of their own righteousness or innocence, but it must be entirely on the basis of Christ's redemptive work and regeneration by the work of the Holy Spirit within them. There is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Unless one is born anew, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, let's stop right there. You have to be born again. Now, if you have to be born again, how is one born again? By faith. That means the child has to exercise faith. If you're going to make an exception, you've just got to argue all the scriptures that speak of salvation don't apply to infants. So, hey, so so if that don't apply to infants, at what age do they apply? Look, I'm telling you, if you're going to put infants in heaven, you're creating an age of accountability. And now how far do you extend it? Someone say, I will only extend it for six months. I will only extend it for a year. I will only extend it for two years. Who gets to determine the, length, the, the time? 
Who gets to determine that? Because you're creating an age what, like this, up to this age, you're not accountable. Well, again, if, if you're going to say the child is not accountable, how can I be held accountable? I lock, I lock the, I have the absolute lack of, of ability as a child does. Very important to understand. So let's see what he's going to do here. Yet, it is certain, it is certainly a, let me read this again. Yet, it certainly is possible for God to bring regeneration, that is new spiritual life, to an infant even before he or she is born. This was true of John the Baptist for the angel Gabriel before John was born said he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Luke 1 15. Now let's stop right here. Now this is now we're getting into dangerous theological grounds because John the Baptist was filled from the from the womb with the Holy Spirit. Now you're going to tell me that somehow that's possible for all infants. Well, so what? If all infants are filled with the Holy Spirit in the womb, therefore all infants go to heaven, then when do they lose the Holy Spirit? Five days old? 10 days old? 20 days old? 30? Six months? A year? If they can be filled with it, then how do, when do they lose it? No, what we are probably going to say, the only ones filled with it are the ones who die. They're all filled with it. The ones who don't, the ones who don't die, well, sorry. Now, wait a minute. Now, if he can fill people with the Holy Spirit from birth, then why wouldn't God just do that for every person who's ever been born? Right? I mean, if he can just magically save the infant from the womb, then why don't just, why don't just save all, all people magically from the womb? I mean, you, these are questions you have to ask. See, these are the questions you're not supposed to ask in church. And this is why, this is why, like, if I was to ask this question in a large church, I would be fired. I'm telling you Monday morning. You've got, and, and here's the thing. They put these kinds of discussions in systematic theologies, but the systematic theologies are never to be brought to the pulpit. And I understand it's sensitive. I understand there are people hearing me who've lost children, and I understand it's not easy subject. And I hate that it's not an easy subject, but I don't, I have to address it. It's just like, look, if I don't address the infant question, then I shouldn't address the hell question because people know adults who are in hell. So I shouldn't address the hell question. I like, we should just forget the doctrine of hell. Let's just throw it out. Because there's people who've lost young, uh, young children and there's people who've lost, uh, there's people who've lost young children. There's people who've lost teenagers. There's people who've lost young adults. There's, pe- I mean, there's people die of all ages. Just walk a cemetery and you'll see all ages represented. Well, death, then there's judgment. All right, let's, uh, oh, hang on. I just lost my marking here. Let me find the page. 428, 568. Okay, hang on. Got to scroll back up here. Give me one second. I'm using a digital copy of the book. And uh, I touched the page. And the next thing you know, I'm losing out everything here. Okay, we're dealing with the atonement. Oh, that's that's not the right page. Give me a second here. 
All right. No, we don't want that chapter. Now we're dealing with Christological heresies. Let me find it. Give me a second. Yeah, so in the middle of such a serious subject, I lose the page. Okay, here we go. I think I found it. All right, hang on. Give me a second. Yeah, here we go. All right, let's get back to this and see what Grudem has to say. He's going to offer a solution here. Let's see if, if his solution makes any sense. All right. Here we must say that if such infants are saved, it cannot be on their own merits or on the basis of their own righteousness or innocence, but it must be entirely on the basis of Christ's redemptive work and regeneration by the work of the Holy Spirit within them. There is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, and unless one is born anew, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Yet it is certainly possible for God to bring regeneration, that is new spiritual life, to an infant uh, even before he or she is born. This was true of John the Baptist, for the angel Gabriel before John was born said he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. We might say that John the Baptist was born again before he was born. There is a similar example in Psalm 22:10. David said, since my mother bore me, you have been my God. It is clear, therefore, that God is able to save infants in an unusual way apart from their hearing and understanding of the gospel by bringing regeneration to them very early, sometimes even before birth. This regeneration is probably also followed at once by uh, an intuitive awareness of God and trust in him at an extremely early age. But this is something we simply cannot understand. Now stop right there. If God is in the business of saving some children from the womb, then I just don't understand why he wouldn't save everyone from the womb. And if you're going to say, well, he, he saves some from the womb, and let me guess, the child he saves from the womb will be your child or the child of someone you love. But it won't be the child of what? ISIS, won't be the child of the Taliban, won't be the child, uh, you know, like only, only the good people's children, they, they get to go to heaven? I mean, you've got to deal with the, the problem here. I mean, it's not pleasant. I Trust me, I don't want to be talking about this in any way. I want to skip this. It's not a subject. But if we're not going to deal with it for, as a church, then, then I don't know. I don't like the subject. I'm just saying that I can't set up a system going, hey, some children get there, but others don't. And I get to determine the ones that do and the ones that don't. If God is saving children from the womb, he could save us all from the womb. He's like, well, no, uh, that, that comes to election. Ah, oh, so you're going to bring it back to election. Okay, well, then guess wh- which children are elected? Oh, guess what? You don't know, neither do I. So guess what? We can't say, I. then we cannot say. And to say is us trying to play God. We cannot do that. And, and I will argue if God can regenerate someone uh, from the womb, why can't he regenerate someone right before they die? Because clearly you're demonstrating you don't need any evidence or proof of said regeneration, right? Because you can say that child was regenerated from the womb and I know it. Well, then right before someone dies, I'm going to say they were regenerated while they're laying on their deathbed. Um, what else do they have to say here? We must, however, affirm 
very clearly that this is not the usual way for God to save people. Yeah, you think? I would, I, I think <laughs> salvation usually occurs when someone hears and understands the gospel and then places their trust in Christ. But in unusual cases like John the Baptist, God brought salvation before this understanding. And this leads us to conclude that certainly it is possible that God would also do this where he knows the infant will die before hearing the gospel. Right. Again, but you're, you're just trying to provide some kind of hope based on what? John the, is John the Baptist story prescriptive or is simply descriptive? How many infants does God save in this way? Scripture does not tell us, so we simply cannot know. Where Scripture is silent, it is unwise for us to make definitive pronouncements. However, we should recognize that it is God's frequent pattern throughout Scripture to save the children of those who believe in him. Oh, okay. So it's frequently the pattern. So I guess if you're a Christian... What you should experience is the salvation of your children. And I guess if that doesn't happen, then what occurred? I don't know. These passages do not show that God automatically saves the children of all believers, for we all know of children of godly parents who have grown up and rejected the Lord and, and, and scripture. Uh, and also, and, and scripture also gives us examples of Esau and Absalom, Cain. I mean, we could go a, a lot of people. But they do indicate that God's ordinary pattern, the normal or expected way in which he acts is to bring the children of believers to himself. So he's saying the normal expected way is God to bring the children of believers to himself. That's the normal way. Now, that's a big statement. Um, with regard to believers' children who die very young, we have no reason to think that it would be otherwise. Oh, so he's going to re- he's going to restrict this to the children of believers. So if you are a believer and your young child dies, then you can possibly hope that your child God would save them because the normal way is to bring the children of believers to salvation. What that man. And see, here's the thing. Give people that hope. You you can give people that hope. But does that change the reality? I mean, I don't know how many people after my mom died, she's in a better place. 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 Oh, you know that? Like, you've got insight that I don't know? Can you give me that phone number so that I can call and check on the situation? Since you all seem to have the phone number and you seem to all know. Um... Now, and then we'll end with this. All right, two paragraphs. I'm going to try not to say much here because I knew this is where he's going to go and this is what people cling to. And again, I just, you just, just got to be fair to the text. Particularly relevant here is the case of the first child Bathsheba bore to King David. When the infant child had died, David said, I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. David, who through his life, had such great confidence that he would live forever in the Lord's presence. And many of David's, uh, and many of David's Psalms also had confidence that he would see, uh, he, he also had confidence that he would see his infant son again when he died. This can only imply that he would be with his son in the presence of the Lord forever. This passage together with others mentioned above should be of similar assurance to all believers, to all believers, who have lost children in their infancy, they will one day see them again in the glory of the heavenly kingdom. 
Regarding the children of unbelievers who die at a very early age, Scripture is silent. We must leave that matter in the hands of God and trust him to be both just and merciful if they are saved. It will not be on the basis of any merit of their own or any innocence that we might presume they have. If they are saved, it will be on the basis of Christ's redeeming work and their regeneration, like that of John the Baptist before he was born. So believers, you can, you can, he's almost giving you an assurance. If you're a believer and you lose a child, you're good to go. If you're an unbeliever, well, we, we can't really offer you too much hope. Now, again, what was the logical argument that led us to here? Lack of ability does not determine, does not lessen responsibility. Lack of ability does not lessen responsibility. What do we know? That we're guilty in Adam. What do we know? We have a sinful nature. What do we know? We practice sin. So what do we know about every child? And, and make this very clear. God killed children. If he killed, he called for the killing of children, he destroyed children and uh, the flood. I would uh, obviously, um, he killed the firstborn of all the Egyptians, right? Um, we, we can go on and on different times where judgment came upon and fell upon children um, and young adults and adults as well. How could he do that? Because they are sinners. So that clearly, that proves that they are sinners and God holds them accountable. If God holds children accountable, then are you saying he doesn't hold children accountable sometimes? Well, if you're going to say he does that, then guess what you can say? It has to be on the basis of one thing and can only be on the basis of one thing. Has to be on the basis of election. That's the only way to get around it. It's the only way to get around it. Now, if you reject the doctrine of election, then you're based off with decisionism and they couldn't make the decision. And if you say, well, they couldn't make the decision, then therefore they're saved. Well, then you're making the basis of salvation based on one's ability or lack thereof. And you can get rid of everyone's ability by keeping everyone in the dark about Jesus. Then no one would have the ability and everyone would be saved. That logically breaks down, right? That logically breaks down. Okay, well, so then if you're going to say, well, God saves all, you know, all children. Well, then, then, then if all children are saved in infancy, then why are they lost in adulthood? Now you're going to have to come back to this responsibility. Like you can't say, well, any child who dies goes to heaven. Then that means all children are saved and then they lose their salvation at a, at a certain age. And then you're going to bring that to responsibility. Well, now you're back to limit, take away ability and then you remove responsibility. Just take away everyone's ability. Like, you, no matter how you work this, you work yourself into a logical corner. So if we keep it on the basis of election, then guess what we can say? God foreknows before we, before we even exist. He elects before we even exist. And those he elects, he saves. So therefore, on that basis, he could elect a child and save the child. But if he does... Make it very clear that we can't say God, people are saved only by putting their faith in Jesus Christ because this would be a case where God regenerates the child. What Does he give the child faith? I, I mean, you'd, I guess you'd have to say he gave the child faith. I, I don't even know how you work around that. You, you're, very, you're, you're in danger there. But, it, but even for any hope of children being saved, you would have to base it on the, uh, the understanding of election. It's the only way that works. So the, those whom he elects, he saves no matter... Uh, 
no matter their age, he saves them when he deems fit. And if they're going to die in their infancy, then he, well, obviously he, he ordained it to work that way. But guess what? You can't go running around giving people assurance. You can't. And you're, you're relying on something you do not understand, you do not know. This is what I always say. I don't know what happens. I can't understand what happens, and I'm not going to try to predict. And again, if I use the story of David to say all children are saved, then, then I'm creating an age of accountability, and I'm going to have all saved children who then at a later point become lost children. Well, then how does that work? Losing salvation? That you hopefully will get back later? Like, you get it, you, you're born with it, then you lose it, then you get, like, you have to see all of the theological problems this creates. So this is what I would say when it comes to children. I do not know. I cannot with any certainty understand it. I cannot un, in any way, shape, or form explain what happens. I, I, it's beyond my capability. Scripture is silent. This is why the early church wanted infant baptism. I can understand why they wanted infant baptism. So many children died at a young age. They, they had to get a way to get the kids into heaven. But we can't. Look, this is the difference. We condemn Catholics for infant baptism. Well, Baptists, many Baptists, they have something better than infant baptism. It's just called infant salvation. Don't condemn the baptism. We do the same thing. We just do it without water. We just magically give it to them. So don't condemn the Catholics for it. They're doing the same thing we do. They just create an entire ritual and an entire theology around. We don't even bother to think out. We don't even bother to, to try to consider the theological implications of our system. We just want to get them into heaven. And listen, people do it with children. People do it with adults. People do it with teenagers. Because here's the thing we all cannot comprehend. In our minds, let's just, we'll end it with this. In our minds, let's be fair. The doctrine of hell is horrible and horrific to our minds. We can't stomach it. We don't like it. And deep down in our hearts, we want to reject it. I do so. You do so. You have loved ones that you want in heaven. I have loved ones I would like to be in heaven. We all, at Christianity will inevitably lead you to this crisis of faith. It is a crisis of faith when someone you care about dies. It is a crisis of faith. You either end up rejecting your faith, you end up trying to recreate your faith, you end up trying to play God, or you end up submitting to what God says even if you don't like it. Or you have to submit yourself to God and the silence of Scripture on the specific particular situation that you encountered. All right, I'll stop right there. I apologize. I know it's a sensitive subject. I'm not trying to be insensitive. I'm trying to just make you really, really deal with a very, very, very unpleasant subject. You can't talk about sin and not deal with it. You cannot. And I, I hope I did not offend anyone. I know it's difficult. I just want you to understand, you've got your situations that are very sensitive to you. I've got situations that are very sensitive to me. When I had to stand there as a young, I was, I had not been saved that long when my mom died. And when I had to sit there and try to process this whole thing about her death, salvation, hell, that was, that was a major contributing factor that led me to taking a gun and trying to kill myself. 
That was a major contributing factor to trying to put a bullet in my own head is trying to process this. It was a crisis of faith. A major crisis of faith. The person I knew in in middle school who hung himself. I I remember a bunch of teenagers after his death sitting at a house in Buffalo Gap. I don't know how many of us were in that room. People were crying and people like, oh, you commit suicide, you go to hell. You know, was he a Christian? Not, and all these teenagers trying all of a sudden had these major theological discussions about his soul. Was he in heaven or was he in hell? Now, these teenagers didn't ever care to have a discussion about heaven or hell any other time. But now someone had died and they wanted to make sure that they could get him into heaven. But then some people like my church teaches, if you commit suicide, you're going to hell. Well, you know, like, so like, how do you work that? Like everyone has this, this crisis of faith. No, no one is, no one, no one is immune to it. You've got yours. I'm speaking to people. You've got yours. I've got mine. There are people listening to us that we don't know. This is bringing up horrible memories and horrible situations, but it's something that we have to deal with. Christians can't, we can't create a church where we don't ever want to look at the ugliness of theology. There is an ugly side to doctrine. There's an ugly side to theology. I won't dare say there's an ugliness side to believing in God. We always want to paint it as, as rainbows, unicorns, and it's all beautiful. There's an ugly side to it. For where God says, believe in me and you will have eternal life and you will be saved. And there's the idea of salvation, no more pain, no more suffering, no more death, and the glory of God forever. That's the beautiful side. That same Bible says, depart from me, for I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. And then they go to a place where they suffer for all eternity. That's horrible. That's horrific. Some will even argue it's psychologically damaging and should be rejected just because of its psychological damage. And it is very damaging. The question is, is it true? And if it's true, then how does the doctrine of sin influence that? The doctrine of sin, we're guilty in Adam. Is that enough to send a person to hell? Then that means every infant should go to hell because they're guilty in Adam. They have a sinful nature from conception. Is that enough to send them to hell? If it is, then every infant should go to hell. And if they don't, you've got to find some way to get around it. And if you if you if you say they don't lack if you take away their responsibility, uh, if you take away their ability, you're basing their responsibility on their ability. You have to again pass that on to all kinds of people. If you're going to say well, they couldn't make a decision. And then all you have to do is create a situation where people can't make a decision. If you create, they just magically get it and all have it, well, then you've got to explain how they lose it. Or you have to try to look at it from the position of election. And if you do, then you have to just say you don't know. Now you can hope. You can hope. And you can, and you can, and you can pray that God had mercy and that somehow he did so, but you just got to make sure you realize you cannot state with certainty and create a doctrinal dogma out of uncertainty. All right, I'll stop right there. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this morning. Lord, this is not an easy subject. I hate preaching it. I hate teaching it. I, I know that there will probably be tears and heartache even handling it. But the one thing we have to trust is that you are God. Your word is true, and there's parts we love, and there's parts we struggle with. 
Lord, you are just, you are right, you are holy, and you have the right to judge. We don't like your judgment sometimes, Lord, and forgive us for our attitudes when we don't. But Lord, let us just struggle with the reality that this is a subject that um, is difficult and that we can only trust you and put all of this into your hands. And we have to say what we do not know and not say that we do when we don't and we trust in you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. God's people said, amen.